0: Hello, my name is John Hamel. Welcome to the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs' ongoing series of podcasts on intimate partner violence, or IPV. The Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, more commonly known by its acronym ADVIP, is an international organization of better intervention programs and mental health professionals who provide treatment for perpetrators of IPV as well as researchers with an expertise in the field. The purpose of ADVIP is to advance evidence-based practice and lower rates of intimate partner violence in our communities. In this podcast series, various experts offer their thoughts, research findings, and clinical experience on topics related to the causes, characteristics, consequences, assessment, and treatment of IPV. Podcast number one, and additional selected podcasts are available for free to everyone. Others are free only to ADVIP members. To join ADVIP, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net and click on the Join ADVIP link on our homepage. Again, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net. Thank you for listening. Hello everybody, this is John Hamel, and I'm here to interview Claire Cannon. She received her doctorate from the Interdisciplinary City, Culture, and Community Program at Tulane University. She's currently an assistant professor in the Department of Human Ecology at the University of California, Davis. Her research areas include socio-environmental inequality with an emphasis on feminist theories and methods, applying theories of intersectionality to studies of the environment, and applying queer and feminist theories to policies and interventions around personal-based violence. In the past couple of years, I've had the pleasure of working with Claire on a couple of projects. Along with myself and some of her colleagues at Tulane, Claire helped to develop and administer the 15-page questionnaire, the North American Domestic Violence Intervention Program Survey, which yielded a great deal of information on batter intervention programs. She also contributed to a comprehensive journal link literature review on batter intervention programs titled Domestic Violence Perpetrator Programs, a proposal for evidence based standards in the United States. So Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. Great to have you. What does uh, research tell us about intimate partner violence within uh, LGBTQ communities? For example, prevalence rates of perpetration and victimization. Uh, What do you know about risk factors, motivations for perpetrating IPV, et cetera?
1: So this is a great question, John, and um, I'd start by answering it by saying we don't know a lot about intimate partner violence in LGBTQ communities. Um, There definitely have been more research conducted in the past few years than previously, but we know more than we used to, right? Right. Um so to answer kind of your specific questions, um, prevalent rates of perpetration um <clears throat> are similar, we believe, to those um in opposite sex relationships. So we're looking at um one in four, one in five. Um, I think it's important to break down we can talk about the LGBTQ community, kind of umbrella community, but I think it's also important to take kind of each um community within that apart. So for instance, um, for, for the trans community, um, we, we probably know the least. Um, and there, uh, was a recent study, um, in 2016 that looked just at, um, trans, trans violence and, and similarly, they found that, um, violence between, um, trans partners, tends to occur at similar rates as um, kind of opposite sex and, and maybe at higher rates. Um, similarly, you've done some fantastic work on the bi community, showing that um, people who identify as bisexual um, experience intimate partner violence at greater rates than same sex uh, relationships. Um. So I think it's really important when we're talking about the LGBTQ community to to, to talk about it as this, you know, overall community, um, but also to, to try to get more information on each community within that, um, because they're going to be different risk factors, they're going to be different motivations for people, um, depending on, you know, who they are, and what community they're a part of, and what kind of relationships they have, um, and what they seek out. In terms of risk factors, there are, um, you know, similar risk factors as those in same-sex relationships, or in opposite-sex rec- relationships, excuse me. Um, you know, such risk factors that, that we've come to, to spend um, some time understanding and unpacking in the field are power and control. Um, specifically with, with risk factors, one of the things that is sets this community apart is um, homophobia and homophobia yeah. mm-hmm. both internalized as well as external so when we talk about homophobia, um, we can talk about kind of internal homo negativity i've seen it called in some um, psychology journals, and that would be kind of what we think of in the public as internalized homophobia. So just because um, a person identifies as LGBTQ um, doesn't mean that they're separate from the dominant culture, right? It means that they're part of our culture. And part of what our culture says, although, you know, increasingly, it's changing in, in certain parts of it, is that, you know, you are less than. If you're LGBTQ, then then, you, then there's a hierarchy. And you're you are at the bottom of it, and um, straight or heterosexual identifying people are at the top of it, and so that's a
0: big risk factor. Um, could you could you speak more to that, uh, and also talk about the different ways that homophobia affects uh, individuals? I, I'm thinking of uh, research finding, for example, that. That police departments tend to minimize uh, domestic violence within uh, LGBTQ communities. Um, uh, they see it as just—they uh, see it as as always kind of—it's kind of the opposite of the way they view opposite sex violence. But opposite sex violence, they—they—they they, they often tend to see everything as battering, or sometimes just assume the male as the the primary violent partner because he's usually bigger. Um, so you have those stereotypes and then with LGBTQ communities, uh, often the police just, even if one person is clearly dominating and abusing and battering the, the, the victim, uh, they, they figure that since it's same sex, it must be mutual. Uh, so there's that kind of homophobia. And then of course there's the internalized homophobia that, you know, people like, uh, Valerie Coleman and Claire Renzetti talk about as far as, mm-hmm. uh, Talk about how that might lead uh, to a more—I don't know—a uh, more close, maybe a more closed community, or a community that's kind of at odds with the outside. Um, you know what I'm speaking to with when uh, yeah. Valerie Coleman talks about in, in t- more intense relationships uh, it's in smaller communities, not always trusting everyone to protect you.
1: Absolutely, and and she's done some incredible work. So I think. John, you highlight a, a couple really important points there, right? As, as one is the issue with police. So so one of the reasons why we think that um, we've gotten kind of more calls is, is is as the as violence has this kind of violence has become criminalized, right? You get police more involved. But one of the things that we've seen is that um, if they are called to a scene with, you know, same sex partners, there's a real diminishment it's this idea of, well, you can't, like, say it's two women, right? Right. And so the, the idea is that, like, oh, well, you guys can't really hurt each other that much. So we're, like, we're not going to, like, you know, it's more work for everybody if we have to take you in, and you don't really want us to do that because that's, like, more work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, having to go through the court system, um, there are costs associated. So just, like, you know, you're not really going to hurt each other. Like, don't do it. So there's this... Yeah, like it's a cat fight or something. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it really gets minimized and it's not treated as, you know, personal based intimate partner violence. And so one of the things it does is that, you know, these women are not given access to the same sorts of resources that other people might um, have access to. There aren't the same kind of legal consequences either. And so there's this real kind of minimization of of what is intimate partner violence because of this idea of you know well how bad could it be right so it's this conflating intimate partner violence with um, different degrees and kind of the quality of violence when we talk about intimate partner violence right we're talking about certainly physical violence but we're talking about emotional abuse we're talking about verbal abuse we're talking about stalking so intimate partner violence is also this constellation of different kind of actions with different degrees. Um, that's also important to understand when we're talking about the quality and health of people's relationships.
0: Right, so let's, since we're talking a little bit about stereotypes, um, one of the stereotypes uh, of course is that when women uh, in lesbian relationships are violent then they, they must have masculine traits and they must be the, the you know so-called butch partner. Where in fact uh, Renzetti, I think Renzetti, has shown that, in fact, uh, it doesn't really matter the, how the partner uh, appears or expresses herself or what stereotype uh, she seems to fit in, that uh, lesbian relationships uh, are characterized by violence all around, and it doesn't really depend on, on the person's sort of stereotypical, you know, persona. Do, do you agree with that? Or have you found research to, to, that uh, contradicts that those findings?
1: I do agree with that. And I think that, you know, part of the way that, you know, I teach this in my in my courses and, and the way that, that I explain it um, at different um, meanings and gatherings is, if you think about it, anyone is capable of violence, right? There There isn't something about, you know, gender or, or sexual orientation or identity that makes one not, not capable of violence. And so I think what those stereotypes do and what you know, people like Valerie Coleman and, and Rinzetti's work helps us to undo is those stereotypes really prevent us from doing and looking at the hard problems. So um, <clears throat> I've done research about, you know, we talk about the illusion of inclusion. And if we're really serious about, you know, including people in the, in the framework of, of resources and access that Violence Against Women Act provides and, and other sorts of state measures... Um, then we have to be serious and, and, and take, um, take it face value that, that people are, are, are capable of different violence. And to really get it, that, that question that you asked, I think so important is motivation. So why would, you know, um, two women in a relationship use violence? Is that for similar reasons or different reasons, but, but there's nothing in, in the research to suggest that because someone identifies as femme, that they're not, Um, capable of violence and what we do when we assume that it's the butch partner right is then we might orient um, our services and our resources towards someone who really needs victim services right right, Um, right. and so it really prevents us from doing meaningful intervention in these communities that really need it
0: we were talking about uh, risk factors and uh, homophobia being one of them I mentioned Uh, homophobia in context of our culture and we talked about that and I also mentioned internalized homophobia Um, so can you speak a little bit more to the notion of uh, internalized homophobia and how that might uh, you know be correlated with uh, perpetration or victimization Because I I see that's clearly one of those uh, risk factors that would differentiate same-sex from opposite sex uh, IPV
1: Yeah. So, um, there are a couple of different mechanisms that we've identified. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are probably more that, that still remain to be identified, um, as more and more people do this, this, this crucial work. So, um, for instance, internalized homophobia, um, kind of internalized homonegativity, um, (coughs) serves as a risk factor. Um, In multiple multiple ways. It can be, um, I have internalized homophobia, and so I use violence as a means for coping and dealing with that. Um, And I use violence in my intimate-based partnership that that my intimate partner becomes the object of that violence because in some ways they are the reflection of these bad feelings I have about myself. Right. Um, So that's one way. It's another risk factor, to go back to our conversation about um, calling police, is that people might not be out. They might not want the police to come. They might be worried about homophobia on behalf of the police. So someone, there's a risk factor where, you know, both perpetrator and victim, and particularly the victim, um, and this might not call the police, even though, you know, there's really a lot of brutality involved because of the fear associated with, with bringing in that. So those are two, two risk factors around, um, internalized, internalized homophobia that, that we see, um, throughout the research.
0: Um, so that's a definite, um, there's a, so that's one of the definite differences between same sex and opposite sex couples, Mm -hmm. uh, internalized homophobia. And uh, one of the things that stood out uh, for me in the, in the research um, is that uh, with control tactics, you mentioned power and control, that mm. uh, threatening to out one's partner is really, that's something that's unique, isn't it? To uh, LGBTQ uh, individuals, as opposed to straight couples, same, you know, opposite sex couples. Uh, that would seem to be a, another, you uh, major difference that the 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 control tactics we know that for example with uh, with uh, with opposite sex couples that males and females uh, both use control tactics but women use slightly different control tactics for example they're not usually as big and has same strength as men so they don't use physical intimidation as often but they might use other tactics and it's uh talk a little bit about the the tactic of threatening to out your partner that kind of thing that's a great point.
1: And so I think that's another, like, really gets at, at the kind of important differences between same sex and opposite sex intimate partner violence. Um, a lot of the research that's been done on opposite sex intimate partner violence around power and control, around interventions that work, about, you know, um, kind of these culturally sensitive interventions. Um, really also sometimes apply like we can learn from that research but we need to to adapt it and we need to bring our own kind of tools and context to bear with same-sex relationships and so the example that you raise um is such an important one so so we we know a fair amount about power and control tactics um in opposite sex intimate partner violence we don't know as much about about same sex and so there are key differences and um, the ways that different people and these relationships use power and control. An example that you highlight, which is I think a really very important one, is this example of kind of using this knowledge as a weapon. So it's weaponizing this knowledge of someone's closeted life and using it to, to control them and make sure they don't leave um, the relationship, uh, to make sure that they kind of stay in line. So it's everything from, you know, if you leave me, I'm going to out you, which could have serious ramifications for someone. So there are different levels of that, right? Say, you know, I'm not, say for instance, I'm not out at work and I have fear that if I'm out at work, I'm going to lose my job. Or if I'm out into my, my family, they're going to stop taking care of me. So there's very real fear associated with that. Um, And so sometimes what we see um, is bidirectional intimate partner violence. And this is true of opposite sex and same sex relationships. So sometimes what we see is, you know, someone says, you know, "If, if you leave me, I will out you. Or if, you know, if you don't, treat me the way that I told you to treat me, then I will out you. And then what we'll see is like violence against that person. Yeah, right. And that stays in the relationship. Someone might think, oh, well, then that person will just out them. But they don't because they're using this knowledge to control the person to stay in the relationship. And so it's this kind of like, well, yeah, violence is part of our relationship as long as the person doesn't leave me. And so that's one way we see this bidirectional intimate partner violence is, you know, one direction is, kind of control and threatening to out someone and the other direction is violence. Um, and so definitely, you know, there are different levels to that bi-directionality, but it's still, you know, bi-direction. And so, um, knowing that, right, having that information, then we can tailor our victim services. We can tailor our intervention differently, um, to help people kind of understand what they're doing and how it's, you know, uh, this tactic of control and, it's unhealthy for a relationship and why are they doing it? And we can get to some of the motivations of, of both, you know, the victim and the, and the perpetrator. Uh,
0: so Claire, what, uh, what services are available out there? Uh, I've done a little bit of research. I I couldn't find a whole lot uh, in yeah. terms of services for um, perpetrators and, and victims.
1: Yeah. So um, that's, a, that's a really important question. And um, I have a, a piece coming out that, um, that talks specifically about what what services are available associated with better intervention programs and better intervention programs are kind of the primary mechanism for um, you know people who've gone through the court system for perpetrator services. And I just read this fascinating um, article from uh, about physicians and what are physicians responsibility um, if they have, a, um, a patient who discloses that they're a perpetrator of intimate partner violence and they say to refer them to a bad intervention program, which I think is really interesting. So it's coming from the courts, but it's also coming from the medical side. So better intervention programs are really important for uh, perpetrators and as the primary mechanism for that. And so some of the services associated with that um, are not a lot there, there are few of them. And what I found is that they're very geographically specific.
0: Mm, right. Um, right, so
1: someplace right. like Chicago or Portland, that is a bigger city. They might have a larger LGBTQ community. There might be more, um, grant funds kind of throwing, th- flowing through there. Um, they're going to have more services and services could be, Um, although this is very, very rare, but highly recommended by practitioners on the front lines in these better intervention programs are LGBTQ identified facilitators of groups that are only uh, of LGBTQ people. Um, and so that's highly recommended, but very rare. Um, but normally... Um, People in these types of relationships are put in the standard um, gender stratified groups. So it'll be all women um, perpetrators and all male perpetrators. And a lot of times they don't disclose their um, sexual orientation and they go through a court mandated um, program. And we worry uh, about kind of, you know, is that the best intervention for them. Mm-hmm. of There might be fear associated, especially in a smaller town or a town that they're from, more rural town, um, with being outed. They're, so it adds stress. Um, and, and looking at the different curriculums, that it might not speak to, as we've discussed, the specific risk factors and motivations. Um, the most often service uh, associated with better intervention programs is if someone identifies as, you know, in a same-sex relationship, then sometimes um, they'll be pulled out of the group and they'll have one-on-one intervention program with the facilitator. Um, And kind of one of the issues that that we call up with that is that they're not getting the benefits of the group therapy. And so they're not really going through the program, they're getting one-on-one counseling. Um, and I know some people might might think like, oh, one-on-one counseling, that's better than a group. And it's, you know, it could be better than nothing. It really depends on the facilitator and the relationship and kind of the standards of practice. Um, but part of why group therapy is done with this kind of intervention is because it's really useful to have people all in a room sharing their experiences and talking about you know, why did they hit their partner? or Why were they, like, controlling their partner? And that really serves to help illuminate for one another kind of what's going on and, and getting to these motivations and these risk factors and then going through this training and practicing with, you know, how can you do it differently? Those are some of the, the services available um, for LGBTQ perpetrators.
0: Um well, let me, let me ask you, Claire. I mean, I, a few years ago when I was working on a second edition of my treatment manual, I called around all the, I tried to find all the major LGBTQ centers in various cities. So La Red, I think is in Chicago, maybe? Uh, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Boston, New York, uh, Los Angeles. And I asked if they had uh, victim services for, for you know, domestic violence uh, uh, victims and uh, most of them did but only one or two said they have services for groups for perpetrators that were groups made up of of, you know gay or lesbian clients and like we were just talking about and uh, I wasn't able to actually track down and talk with anyone I wanted to write up about what they what kind of curriculum they were using so I, I was unsuccessful have you been more successful in actually finding uh, groups anywhere that work with LGBTQ perpetrators, gay men or lesbian women uh, and do they have you know their own curriculum? what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. I haven't um, the I have not found that. I think that typically there are more services for victims. That's not to say that the services are better, but there are more um, kind of you know little nonprofits or women's shelters. Or LGBTQ community centers that will offer some kind of service for um, victims. I have not found. I do know, um, kind of, you know, informally in my work, nothing that I've like um, formally studied that there are, you know, services from just putting someone up. Right. So, say a victim leaves their partner of housing them or finding them housing and, and, you know, helping them with job and money and all of that, those kinds of kind of life basics of this is what you need when you, when you leave a really violent situation. Um, I know of some just counseling that some LGBTQ communities will either refer out that they have therapists and counselors that they trust and recommend, Um, very rarely, but, Occasionally, in wealthier places like New York and, and other places where there are more money, they'll have kind of therapists on staff. And that's just, that's general community, right? That's for people in the community, but they'll also see um, both victims and perpetrators. But I don't know uh, a specific curriculum. Now, in my work with the Batar Intervention Services, one of the recommendations um, that came up again and again was to work with LGBTQ community centers to get the word out about, this, about the batter intervention services. So the idea being that batter intervention programs can work with their local LGBTQ community. And I think that, you know, talking to you makes me think that they can also work on a curriculum together as they use the LGBTQ community centers to kind of get the word out to the LGBTQ community that say, hey, like we have these services available if you're in this kind of situation. Right. Um, they can also work with the community centers to talk about curriculum. And the batter intervention program can come with the expertise of this is how, you know, this is what we know about intimate partner violence, this is how we treat it. And the LGBTQ community can say, this is what our community is facing. Here are the risk factors particular to them. Here are the motivations that they've discussed with us. And so it can be um, that kind of um, inner partnership or collaboration can also serve to help build this curriculum that will hopefully be um, more effective.
0: Well, as you know, I'm based in the, like you, in this greater San Francisco Bay Area. Actually, you're in Sacramento, uh, closer to Sacramento, but I've been here for a long time. I've been doing groups in San Francisco for 25 years, and uh, I can tell you I've done groups with uh, gay clients and uh most of the time they 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 do fine in a uh in a regular group of uh you know straight men usually they do well uh it it depends it's interesting they're more likely to be accepted if they uh you know if they're i'll give you an example uh we had a a couple of football players can't divulge their identities but both of them were fairly well known and and uh, they were easily accepted in the in the men's group for obvious reasons, right? Cause they're very manly and, you know, they're tough. Uh, so, uh, but then we, if uh, if they're a little bit more flamboyant or they, they fit that kind of gay stereotype, then then it's a little more problematic. Um, you know, it really, Claire, it, it seems to me, uh, d- it depends a lot on how comfortable the person feels, whether or not they're going to succeed. Because I've noticed the ones who feel pretty comfortable in a group with straight men seem to do okay and then the men eventually just sort of you know accept it. but now that san francisco uh it's different in outside the san francisco so for example in contra costa county i've had a couple of gay men you know join my groups and they were you know pretty confident guys uh but they weren't accepted at all and it was just it caused a lot of stress and eventually they wind up leaving so I get what you're saying uh that definitely there's going to be a lot of gay men and I I presume um, lesbians who as well who are going to feel much more comfortable in a in their in a group of um of their peers. Uh, I'm just pointing out that it for some people um the regular programs can work but I want to add a caveat which is my programs are not the you know the kind of Duluth model types of programs they're our programs are CBT, they're more flexible, they're more likely to, we have our curriculum is more likely to speak to the needs of, uh, of everyone, uh, you know, the learning to control your emotions, learning to express yourself, communicate more effectively, and so forth. Uh, there's a fellow in San Francisco named Patrick Letelier. You may have heard of him. He was. He's an activist and he has been an activist in San Francisco working for LGBTQ lgbtq communities and he refers to uh the, the sort of heterosexist types of um, sort of orientation to the duluth model because it presumes that you know domestic violence is about power and control by men over women and it sort of misses mm-hmm. you know, it misses a lot of the dynamics of uh, of uh, lgbtq violence um anyway i just want to put that out there that i i've worked successfully with gay men, and, and we've had lesbian women uh, in our women's groups who have done quite well. Uh, I think the women have an easier time than the men.
1: <laughs> it, I mean, that's a great point. And I think part of what you're highlighting is that, you know, I think it, it speaks a lot to how comfortable someone is, right, And in that space and navigating that space, and that it really depends on what model you're teaching, right? CBT, I think, offers more flexibility in terms of kind of different cultures and different perspectives than the Duluth model. But there probably is a way to teach, and, and I'm not aware of anyone, but there probably are groups who are teaching a more, you know, kind of queer version of the Duluth model. But I think that's an excellent point about, you know, it's not just the program structure, um, it's about what the philosophy is and what the, what their kind of modality is in, in addressing the, these sorts of issues.
0: That would be really interesting to see it a Duluth model, uh, um, for say gay men, how that would, how they would be able to make that work. But, uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I, you know, I'm open to anything that will work, uh, given the, the fact that these programs, these BIPs are not nearly as effective as we'd like them to be. So I'm, I'm right. open to all of that. <laughs> what about public policy? Uh, because after all it's, you know, public policies, uh, and cultural, the cultural mindset really determines what services are going to be available and, what aren't going to be available. What would you like to see maybe change in terms of public policy on domestic violence uh, services for uh, LGBTQ perpetrators and or victims?
1: A lot of great work has been done to kind of get domestic violence criminalized. um, And to, you know, it was not so long ago that a man could beat his wife and it was legal. Um, So in a lot of ways we've come, we've come very far. And I think that um, the logical extension of the direction that we're going, you know, all things being equal, um, is to have more policies directed towards um, protecting LGBTQ folks and also giving them services, right? So if we think about equality, um, we can think about kind of having equal access, to these types of services and interventions, um, I think how does that come about? We might see a more piecemeal strategy, right? We might see like San Francisco enact certain policies that that um, you know say that recognize that intimate partner violence happens at similar or greater rates than opposite sex relationships. Um, and because we know that and it's data driven, um, we need to provide more services. And so, you know, helping to facilitate these partnerships um, could happen at the policy level. I think, I think the way that at the federal level and um, the states have kind of mirrored this to, to certain degrees um, along a spectrum of kind of more conservative to more liberal is the Violence Against Women Act really enshrines this notion of, you know, a man beats his wife, and that's what domestic violence is. Um, And even though, you know, I looked at state standards, even though the language has changed to kind of remove those gender identifiers, when reading it, it's clear that that's what they're talking about. And in the study we did um, of better intervention programs and practitioners, um, people would use this gender-neutral language, and then they would slip into it. Yeah. Right. So they would they would say so it was clear that, you know, they weren't saying he beats her and that's what we have to stop. Um, But then they would say that kind of three sentences later. So it was clear that that was still people's mind frame. So I think in order to really be inclusive is to have language that specifies and doesn't just isn't just new new, gender neutral, but that specifies that this happens in this community. And what we need are, um, you know, more funding for services. And I know that funding is tight, um, but that's, again, what everyone said um, that we talked to it about our intervention programs is like, you know, we would like to do everything, but we, you know, have funding to maybe keep the lights on and do these sorts of things. And so I think that policy can really address that and having kind of a dedicated funding stream. Because as of now, most funds come from perpetrators. So most people who are going um, are paying, and sometimes they can't afford to. And um, I think, you know, that's a whole other conversation about how do you do that. And I think that, you know, that needs to be apportioned out. But I think having specific language in these policies that recognizes that this is a pernicious social, social problem that occurs in the LGBTQ community, and even having you know, support or funding going to community centers, um, LGBTQ community centers, so that they're more aware of it and kind of give gives them the tools. Um, I think would really help bolster intervention and treatment. You know, I, I think that the public policies around arrest are very complicated, um, in the sense that, you know, in some ways it could increase um, the likelihood of violence. Say someone, a partner gets arrested and they go to jail. You know, I, uh, this is an anecdote, but I have a friend um, who works in the LA district attorney's office and she says, you know, most of her cases, she has non-felony, um, criminal cases and most of them are domestic violence and the victim doesn't show up. And if the victim yeah. doesn't show up, then they right. can't sentence and it's a waste of everybody's time. And, um, if someone already uses violence in their relationship, And they get arrested and they have to spend the night in jail and then nothing happens and they go home to the same situation, right? right? We can think of that as a way of exacerbating the situation. So I think the public policies on arrest are very complicated. And then, you know, for some people it saves lives, right? Like someone gets arrested and they go to court and um, for some people they get mandated to better intervention programs and it saves their relationship. Um, You know, that's kind of what we hope for. But that kind of getting, you know, training into police departments about this issue and, you know, how to handle it and having therapists who can be on call, right? That all takes resources to kind of build up that, that framework. Um, but I think that one place to start is to put this, this language that specifies in these policies that this is a community that requires... Um, services and it's one that requires acknowledgement that this problem is going on
0: well Uh, i know that uh, i know that the violence against women act in the last couple years has been somewhat modified to include language providing funding for um, for male victims um, as well as victims in lgbtq communities Um, there's an organization called um, uh, stop abuse for everyone they're they're an internet Uh, Organization, have you heard of them? I'm not. Stop Abuse for uh, Everyone Safe uh, started about 15 years ago. It was um, put together by individuals who are concerned about uh, how to provide services to underserved communities. Uh, So it includes um, straight men as well as gay and lesbian, LGBTQ uh, victims. And it's still around. they uh, so it would seem that all these underserved communities would be natural allies so mm-hmm. men, men who are uh, straight men who are victimized, who uh, complain about um, exaggerated uh, or false allegations of domestic violence, who aren't able to find shelter space uh, would be natural allies with LGBTQ you know individuals who are victimized as well. And I, I just was wondering if you had heard of any other, Organizations that uh, try to provide uh, services to under under you know serve populations.
1: Any specific ones? I think yeah. Emerge in
0: Boston. They've
1: been around for I want to say mm. thirty years. Yeah, um, and there I believe uh, they do. I think perpetrator and victim services, and I believe they have a LGBTQ specific. Um, group. And I think they've worked very closely with the community center in Boston as well. Um, and that, I mean, that's a great point too, because it could, you know, there, I, I, I understand that the Vines and Women Act is, um, you know, definitely evolved. Um, I think it could evolve further, but I, it might also be <laughs> a grassroots issue, right? So you have something like safe where these natural allies come together, um, and so it, it starts out like that, right? So you're you're bringing these community um, centers and services together on that front, and really advocating for change, and also providing for people who who need it. Uh, I believe there's a another um,
0: program in Chicago, but I don't remember the name. What? Tell me about any current research you're working on, Claire. Like, uh... What are you focusing on right now? What's, what kind of projects do you have in the work, so to speak?
1: So um, continuing on, um, I mentioned the piece coming out about um, what services are available for LGBTQ perpetrators in the U.S., specifically um, primarily focusing on better intervention programs. Um, I also um, just worked on a piece with colleagues from Tulane on – ethical considerations for conducting research um, after disasters. So we can think of you know, BP oil spill, or we could think of um, the flooding in Houston. Um, but really thinking about how do we, it was a review of the literature on um, how, how do we conduct research ethically, and what are the primary guidelines? Um, And part of that is looking at um, kind of minorities. So we can think of more vulnerable populations. So LGBTQ people, um, uh, ethnic and racial minorities, children, women. So paying close attention to these vulnerable populations in that space um,
0: to help come up with with some guidelines from researchers. Um, It was good to speak with you. We finally got it together. Yeah, the, this uh, has
1: been wonderful.
0: I'm learning. I'm not very technologically savvy, Claire, so I'm, I'm learning as I go along here. Um, but I really enjoy talking with you. It's a very important uh, topic, and that's why I've included it as one of the first uh, of the podcasts.